I guess, with, with you know, what comes with a kind of shared experience, you know, and a challenging shared experience is that empathy and understanding that, you know, all of us at some point in the last sort of 18 months, you know, have found things difficult. Obviously, the variation there has been massive, but that sense of seeking seeking support and reaching out, you know, hopefully that understanding is, has increased as well. Actually supporting the caregivers and the parents is going to have the best outcomes for for the children's. You don't need me to tell you what a strange 18 months we've just been through. It's been a challenge for us all. But what about our children? This episode, I speak to child psychologist Dr Caroline Gibbs, who talks us through how our children's mental health has been affected by the pandemic and what we can do to support them. Welcome to Tinto Talks, the podcast where mums and experts reveal what you really need to know about motherhood so that you can really trust your instincts. I'm Octavia, a physiotherapist of 10 years and a mother of two. My focus is to empower women through pregnancy and beyond through strengthening their bodies and providing information and therefore choices. I've also recently become an expert for Tinto, an app that I've seen improve mums' lives with fast, trustworthy advice whenever they need it. Hey now, have you muted yourself? I did, I did just mute myself, yeah. (laughs) Obviously, we're here to talk about mental health um, with children and how it's been affected during the pandemic. Um, I don't know about you, Caroline, but I've been having some pretty crazy conversations with my children that I just never thought that I would be having over the last year. Um, I remember when lockdown first happened, trying to explain to Azalea why she wasn't going to nursery and that why we had to stay in the house um, and saying to her, you know, there's there's a really big bug and uh, we need to stay safe. So we need to stay inside. And she was like, she's four. And she was saying, what do you mean it's a big bug? Like, how big is the bug? You know, is it as big as a car? And then I was having to kind of, I was laughing. I was saying, no, 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 it's actually really tiny. And then, you know, you can't even see it. And it was just so difficult for her to comprehend. Yeah, yeah. And for us, right? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, exactly. I mean, if it's hard for, for us to comprehend, then, you know, for, for them, it must be even more challenging. Um, and then as the year's gone on, you know, it's all the year and a half. It's kind of having conversations about why she still can't go swimming and why she still can't, you know, see her friends. And, and then as things have changed, you know, one minute you can see them and then you can't. And, you you know, it's just been so, you know, complex and confusing. And then, you know, right at the end of this last year, I ended up also, Azalea saw me lighting a candle and she was asking me, you know, why I was why I was lighting it. And I had to explain to her that the childminder that she had been seeing before lockdown had actually died um and I didn't actually explain that it was the coronavirus but that had killed her which which was the case but you know having that kind of conversation with my four-year-old daughter was really quite hard and I've I've had a conversation with her about death before because my mum died two years ago so I kind of broached that topic before but it was um yeah it's just a really it's been a really challenging year for for everyone but from, from a parenting perspective too yeah, definitely. In so many ways, I guess you've had very different conversations there with a two-year-old versus a four-year-old as well. You would probably notice a big difference in yeah. how she was sort of engaging with yeah. you about that topic as well. But well, she's yeah. just quite brutal about it actually now. Like you know, she's like, "Is it because she's dead?" Like you know, just says things that are just so kind of matter of fact, which is just how they think, isn't it? You know, like it's really 
like sometimes it's quite kind of like oh when they say it but then actually it's just totally spot on isn't it we have so much emotion wrapped up with how we feel and you know what we feel we should be protecting our children from whereas actually it, it is just a matter of life isn't it it's so silly that death is such an awkward topic for us all so that's another podcast i think <laughs> well exactly i know it really is so caroline dr caroline gibbs Thank you for joining us today, um, especially this is your last week of work before you go off on maternity leave, isn't it? Yes, yeah, no, it's lovely, lovely to do something a bit different as well. Yeah, exactly. So can you just introduce yourself for us so that the listeners know who you are and why you are well equipped to discuss what we're talking about today? Sure. So, yes, I'm a clinical psychologist and I specialise in working with children and adolescents um, and parents as well. Um, I work in the NHS um, and I'm currently working in a service, uh, a sort of specialist service in terms of it's something that's been rolled out in the last few years. So we work in schools, um, the idea being that we can offer um, support for children and families earlier on so that access to to services is a a little bit smoother for them. Um, And my service particularly works with kind of mild to moderate end of the spectrum. So we offer sort of preventative work, but also trying to support families where things that are kind of perhaps just starting to present as being problematic. Um, Yeah. Yeah, amazing. And I think like it makes so, so much sense to have it in the schools because, you know, it's the children are there every day. It's, it's you know, the, the other kind of group of people who have the most interaction with your children. So, you know, rather than going to your GP who might not see them that often, you've got the teacher who sees them every day and might be able to notice those little changes. So a really great system that's been set up. So um, obviously the last year has been mental for everybody (laughs) excuse the pun um and um how do you think that the pandemic has um affected children um, and young people with regards to mental health and well-being so i guess well to simplify it it's varied massively i think um but there have definitely been kind of key things that we've seen across the sort of last year just over a year so in terms of mental health particularly we've definitely seen a big rise in the numbers of young people presented with mental health difficulties. So I think something that I saw, read, I think it was just in the paper recently, was describing kind of a few years ago, you might have said that one in 10 young people might be experiencing a mental health difficulty, whereas now we're looking at much more like one in six. So quite a big, big rise in the last in, you know year or so. Um, and I think in terms of themes or things that we've seen particularly, we know that children or young people who are struggling prior to COVID that we've seen kind of a deterioration in many of their mental health because they haven't been able to access the support either at all or the sort of way that they've accessed support has changed so significantly. Um, and also, obviously, a, a big proportion of children who actually prior to COVID were managing quite well, you know, not no, no difficulties that, you know, we've seen a proportion of those children also starting to struggle in the same way that us as adults, you know, there's been a, so many different things going on to sort of... Um, I guess, trigger or act as a trigger for, for sort of concerns around mental health. And, and that's certainly been the same for young people as well as well as adults. Mm. I mean, there's just so many different, as we just mentioned, topics that we've been talking about with children that you just never would normally have to talk about, you know, death and, you know, school closures, like the, all the chaos with, around exams and things like that. Um, and also that just complete change of your normal structure from going out to play in the playground to just having play dates and people coming over for tea, you know, just, you know, just interacting with other people. 
just get your family all the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just things we took family. for granted. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And do you think there's other factors that kind of come into play about how children have coped? I get. I suppose in terms of um, groups of children that we've seen who have perhaps been more vulnerable, certainly there are th- themes that we've been able to kind of recognise. Um, and unfortunately, I suppose it's things that we already knew were, existed, but these problems have been kind of massively magnified as a result of the pandemic. So, um, you know, we know that children from minority um, minority ethnic groups are definitely already those who perhaps are more vulnerable to um, experience poorer health outcomes. And that's certainly been the case in terms of the pandemic. And I guess perhaps partly that ties into the fact that we know, you know, adults who are of black and ethnic minority are more likely to have become very unwell or even die. So these children perhaps have experienced more in, the, in terms of loss or grief. But there are many other factors as well. So social economic factors. So children who perhaps are living in poverty um, or perhaps more separation from parents and caregivers due to the pandemic that they've also been more vulnerable um, to mental health challenges. And a particular area of concern for us working with children is that around domestic violence. So that's been a real worry for, for us during this time as well. Yeah, it's shocking like, how much the, the rise has, has you know, of, of domestic violence has increased over this last year. And I think it's, you know, all of the problematic areas, as you say, that have been highlighted, you know, they're all they've always been there the problems but it just really brings them all to the forefront and I just really hope that as time goes on they get addressed so that you know because even when life is good or you know not in a pandemic life is still really tough and there's still all of these problems bubbling along and I think it's just those kind of little it's just those uh, unseen problems like the domestic violence or you know everybody not having the equality that they deserve you know yeah and I think that there have been not that it's not that those situations are good, but there's been good outcomes. So it's been perhaps recognised that these inequalities are in existence, and so mm. there has perhaps been mm. a better response than might might have been you know, if we hadn't been in the pandemic. So I think good things have come out of it, and I think you know there have been children who have actually managed really well in the pandemic. Some children mm. have really thrived. You know they've they've been able to kind of take up new hobbies or volunteer in their communities and, and, and really been able to engage in things that have been really good for their mental health yeah. but um, I think the yeah. problems are that it's such an uneven distribution in terms of you know things that children who are able to thrive versus children who, who are perhaps more vulnerable and that gap I guess they talk about that I gap get- becoming bigger. Yeah. I mean, I guess when you talk about kind of, you know, improving because it's become highlighted, you know, when you have to set up new systems to cope with the changes because of it's so glaringly obvious that the, where the problem areas are, hopefully the systems can be put into place to to support them. And you were saying about other, you know, children who've done well, you know, I guess, you know, those children who thrived at being at home have kind of been in that family scenario. They've they've had that kind of communication with their their families and kind of been more supported, really. Yeah, and for those families who are well set up, so obviously Mm -hmm. families who have more financial resource, who perhaps have been able to access support in terms of learning um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, extracurricular activities within the restrictions, you know, that they've done well. I I guess there's another proportion of children who also um, perhaps have, have, I don't know how to say this, perhaps have managed in a way that we wouldn't have anticipated prior to this, but those particularly who have struggled within school, so... 
there is a sort of cohort of children who pre previously actually school wasn't that kind of safe haven or that security or that place that made them feel good school yeah. was perhaps a place where they yeah. struggled because of educational needs or perhaps because of friendship difficulties and actually spending that time at home that's been their safe haven so it, mm. they're sort of experiencing mm. the reverse now that as sort of life's opening up again back to school that that's been quite stressful for them as well mm. um so yeah that variation has just been so so massive mm. i bet it makes it really challenging to kind of manage as well because you've got to work out what the what where the problem is to then put it in place to fix it so what have been the most common problems that you've seen with the younger age groups so I think probably the most obvious one, and it's probably one that is the most obvious across all age groups, but particularly with, with kind of younger children, is anxiety. So I think because there's been so many different reasons to be anxious, so, you know, in terms of health for themselves or health of loved ones, um, obviously the school kind of changes and worries about that, friendships. I think children have been more exposed to things that perhaps previously they might have been protected from so you know financial pressures or you know difficult family dynamics mm -hmm. so I think that's something that's kind of just because there's so many things to be worried about that's had that natural kind of increase in anxiety but I think particularly for children sort of be mindful of is that the way that it's been played out I guess we've had some very kind of quick sudden changes decisions being made very quickly without any sort of warning or any opportunity for children to transition from one state to the other mm. and actually that's that experience of transition or experience of change is so important for children so if you think about things like you know even going from primary to secondary school those are things that are managed very carefully by schools whereas during this time decisions have been made just like that you know with this mm. lockdown in January kids were told they were going to go back to school and then they went in for one day and at the end of that day they were told right you're not going back and we can't tell you when you will be going back so yeah. it's just yeah. that that sort of uncertainty and that never-ending kind of when will it be normal again yeah we, even when they ask you know us you know when can I go back to swimming when can I do this when can I do this there is no answer and also you know children really thrive on yeah routine and that kind of security and you know knowing like you know the you know on monday azalea's always like what are we doing is it is it the nanny day today is it nursery day today you know she just knows in her head what each day is and and she likes that kind of routine and i think you know even though we were definitely in a routine during lockdown because there was nothing other than just the same day every day but um it was you know that what we're all trying to kind of work around that and as you know do you know complete our normal daily tasks and I think sometimes the children could be kind of put to the side a little bit whilst you're trying to you know get the cooking done or make sure you can do your zoom call with work and things like that and whereas normally like work is work and then when the kids come home you know you're focused on them so it was all kind of melded together wasn't it in a way that yeah, it was so yeah. challenging. I mean, I think as adult, you know, everyone, as adults, we thrive off that routine and that it gives us that sense of security, doesn't it? But I guess that's perhaps magnified um, mm. in children as well. You were saying, you know, with anxiety, they kind of, how does it present with the, the younger children? Yeah, I suppose. Because they can't often verbalise it so well, can they? Exactly. So I think often... Um, what you often find with younger children is that they verbalise the kind of the physiological sensations that you experience with anxiety. So we know that when we feel anxious about things, we go into that kind of fight, flight, freeze response. So for younger children, a kind of helpful clue for parents or caregivers, I guess, is that sort of, I've got a tummy ache, I'm feeling sick, maybe I've got a headache. They might be much more better able to kind of communicate those sort of signs of anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and I think often 
things we've heard over and over again in the last few months is around the changes to behaviour. So they're not going to kind of say, you know, well, unlikely perhaps to say I'm feeling really worried about this. But what you might see is your child seeking lots of reassurance. You might see more outbursts. You might see sort of more of these kind of roller coaster ups and downs of emotions. Parents often describe their kids as, oh, you know, they've regressed that, you know, they're acting like they did, you know, when they were a toddler. Yeah. And that's just a kind of a very common way that that children kind of respond to stress. Yeah. And I guess if they're stuck in the house as well, I mean, you know, I feel very lucky because we live in the countryside. And last year when lockdown came, you know, we were we had the garden, we've got the forest nearby, you know, like we could just get them out as much as possible. Whereas, you know, if you're living in a in a flat in London or, you know, just in a you know an environment where you're less you have less access to to some outdoor space you know all that pent-up energy that children have because they have a lot of it like that's you know that's got to come out somewhere and you know it might be that they're I don't know climbing the walls jumping off the sofas or you know whatever but yeah I definitely kind of notice changes in my children's behavior as well. Thinking about um, how we're interacting with each other as well you know in terms of kind of the videos and, and and you know all the teaching was online there's been a lot of self-focus I suppose in terms of screens and, and like looking at yourself as well as you said the social media aspect of it you know that's basically we, we're already kind of really trying to advise our children not to be too wrapped up in their phones and then that's the only way that they can communicate but then on the flip side when you've got your your five-year-old trying to be taught on a computer that I mean that just it just doesn't make any sense to me you know I just don't see how a child can sit still I mean fair enough watch a cartoon for a little bit but to kind of try and interact it just it just doesn't I can't imagine how any child actually learned anything was yet <laughs> um, and actually go, going back to the, the the younger children so from the babies and the toddlers point of view I mean I think you expect them um, to generally be fine because obviously they've got their, their mothers and you know their family around them but what does do you think the lack of kind of varied social interaction would have had an impact on their development at all? Yeah, it's difficult. I think I think this is probably the area that we perhaps um, it's harder to kind of gauge how, how the impact maybe on this age because yeah, perhaps it's more of a long term um, outcome that we'll be looking at. You know, in, in the in the years to come. I think you know we obviously know that those first few weeks, months, you know, first couple of years are so important in terms of sort of lifelong development um yeah. i guess the good thing is that we know that you know the, the 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 most important thing for children is that they've got a safe secure attachment to their primary caregivers so maybe whether that's mum or dad or other people within their kind of immediate sort of uh, circle at home that that interaction is is the key interaction and, and the kind of quality of that but obviously there has been um you know much less in the way of kind of baby groups or you know things for, for toddlers to go to early year settings obviously have been massively impacted so in terms of the sort of longer impacts of, of that I guess we're still kind of not not too sure um but I would say I was going to say I think probably the thing that is more striking or perhaps more concerning is the lack of support for parents literally um, what I was about to say <laughs> Because, yeah, that I get, as you know, we know that being a, a new parent or parent of very young children, it, you know, it's really challenging, particularly if it's your first time round. Um, and that just the access to support for parents has been just so massively cut, whether it's sort of professional support by like health visitors or children's centres or support from family just because of the, the restrictions in place. 
Um, I mean, I literally cannot think of anything more terrifying than having had my first child during a pandemic. It must have been so intense for these mothers because, you know, you, you don't... I, I, there's little things that I was talking to my friend who's just had head during the pandemic that I just, you know, you don't even think about. But even taking your child to the weigh-in centre, like that's a real thing that mothers love doing. It's knowing that their babies are kind of thriving and... You know, it's a, a a space where you can just go once a week, just go and check everything's OK, ask some questions. And they have nothing like they don't have any health visitor visits, you know, doing it on by a phone call. I mean, how many cases of maternal depression and, you know, post-age depression have they missed? And yeah, I just think, you know, you just you you are on your own. And I think, you know, it's 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 been hard for all of us not to have too much of an internal dialogue in your head that can kind of you know when you don't have that interaction with other people that all sorts of things can kind of crop up that you don't even realize that you know were a problem because you it's just you and your mind rather than you know you've normally got your your network that you kind of you know relay your anxieties to and they say oh don't be so silly and you feel fine again but yeah i think i them the the mental health of mothers must have been hugely affected, which again, as you say, will, will must have had some form of impact on on the child as well. So yeah, I think it's definitely. I think that's the area that well, there's been sort of some research recently, um, a, a piece of research by the Sutton Trust. So they've kind of really started to look into this, and and they've made lots of recommendations about supporting not just early years providers, um, but also thinking about how to sort of increase support for new new parents essentially new caregivers um with the recognition that actually supporting the caregivers and the parents is going to have the best outcomes for for the children so i think yeah it's, it's sort of t- almost we have to watch watch this space a little bit i think and really not neglect this area I, yeah i think you know this is where the app tinto actually comes in to its own really because i think at the beginning there was a we were obviously so disappointed that it launched during the pandemic but then actually it just made so much sense because you know you've got everything at the tip of your fingertips you've got that network of mothers um but then you've also got the experts you've got the midwives you've got the physio you've got you know the psychologist that you've got um lactation specialists all of it you know all available at the tip of your fingers and if, if you if you have any questions at any time of the day you've got that kind of support so hopefully you know you know, technology has really helped um, a lot of people during the pandemic. And thank God for things like Zoom. And I know know we're all sick to death of it. But actually to be able to kind of, you know, communicate like this, you know, face to face, but miles apart is incredible. So, yeah, I think um, I just I hope that the National Service kind of take into account like the use of technology in a wise way as they move forward, because, you know, we I mean, go on to it in the next the next question, but you know, there is only a limited amount of resources out there, and as the demand increases, we need to kind of come up with ways where you can still offer that support and that that signposting, and even if it's just at the end of a text um, to people, just to support them as as you know as as life is challenging. Um, I think you mentioned as well about the the baby blind spot. So can you? explain a little bit about that I think it's just something that's been commented on um within sort of early years providers or those working with early early uh, parents and and sort of 
babies and toddlers, just that sense of perhaps it's been a slightly neglected group. Um, I think because there has been so much focus, understandably and importantly, on kind of school age children because of the concerns around education, there has been maybe a slight um, sense of not maybe giving so much focus to those sort of first few years of life without really kind of recognising just how important they are. And I think, you know, an example of that would be for the kind of early year settings, which obviously were well, closed almost entirely for the first first lockdown. And, you know, many we know that many nurseries have kind of essentially had to close because of financial concerns. And mm. that ultimately all that sort of support is, is impacting, of course, all parents, but particularly those who are perhaps more disadvantaged in the first place. Um, so I think just there's a, a bit of a push at the moment to try and shine a bit of a light on this group um, of people in the population. And- I think, um, you know, a friend of ours works in the early years setting and she's just um, set up a an online document about kind of how to talk to children about, you know, really challenging topics. And it's I think it's all those sorts of things about educating parents about how you can, you know, talk about, you know, differences in inequality and, you know, racism and death and all those topics that, you know, we're not equipped to to do and we we're not we shouldn't have to expect to be but just to have the resources out there so that as a parent when you come across something as challenging as you know death or you know any of the you know pandemic whatever the situation like how to talk to your children because it is a skill and it's you know it's yeah it's you know it's just about having simple resources that can really help um how do you think the mental health support has actually been impacted then during the pandemic I think, well, it's definitely in a better state than it was. I think at the beginning, you know, understandably, I guess it's probably a reflection of how we, as a sort of uh, country, or, you know, or population, you know, we, we kind of all went into that sort of freeze mode. Um, you know, no one really knew what was going on. We had such little understanding of what the the virus itself meant. Um, and, you know, essentially most services just shut down. So whether that was physical or mental health, we've seen, you know, there was just a kind of halt on, on support. So that's not only sort of led to a deterioration in people's mental health, but it's also resulted now in this just absolutely massive waiting list. And that's something we're kind of contending with at the moment, that yeah. families are waiting such a long time for support, even families where perhaps the child or young person is experiencing quite significant mental health difficulties. Yeah, one of my clients that I see her granddaughter attempted suicide and the uh you know through between me and I actually contacted you and I contacted um another my my colleague that I work with like trying desperately trying to get some sort of support for her and um she's gone through the right process but she's still got this like you know two-week wait until she's being seen by somebody and then even then the next one's going to be another month and it's just there is no there's nothing out there and it's just really shocking whether you go privately or through the NHS there's just such a drought because there's you know there's just no there's not enough uh, specialists in the area to cope with the demand which is terrifying really it is and I think it's Um, yeah it's terrifying for the young people but also for their you know for their loved ones for their parents for their families to, to know you know well how can I support parents often you know how what if I make things worse you know they just don't have that you know understandably have that um sense of you know how to help so I I mean I think we are we're better now in the sense that services are back up and running um you know face-to-face services I guess a good thing to come out of it is that we've been much more kind of tech savvy now than we were so we're doing kind of sessions over 
video call, which for some populations, so for some parent populations, that's been really effective. They've been able to do it around work. You know, they haven't had to travel to come to an appointment. So we've had sort of a, a greater engagement in some ways from parents. But for, I think for children and young people, that hasn't worked so well. So, you know, there was a, there was a big gap, essentially, in, in service provision for those, for those children. Which is kind of crazy as well, because it feels like over the last few years, you've been on this huge drive to kind of get mental health act, uh, support much more accessible. And then it's just like, you know, put the brakes have been put on. And it's like, oh, God, now it's just this massive backlog. Like, oh, you know, and then also the, the, the it's not just not only is there a backlog, but there's more children and, and adults affected. But also the those children who had the problems in the first place are massively, you know, exacerbated. So it's just yeah, a much bigger mountain for you guys to, to climb. So um, what, what sort of thing do you do to support children in their mental health and well-being? So I think if we're thinking perhaps a bit focusing a bit more on younger children I mean this applies to parents of teens certainly but um the conversations that I've been having more and more with parents in the last kind of few years is much more about how are they taking care of their own sort of well-being um and really sort of pushing them to kind of reflect on this and, and prioritize this because what we often see is that parents will come to our service essentially kind of neglecting all of their own needs and, and sort of that sense of guilt of well you know I haven't got time to do things for me I just need to keep prioritizing my kids and focusing on my kids and doing what's right for them but they're so depleted of their own kind of resources that actually they're not putting themselves in, in a position where they can sort of be the best parent that will be the parent that they want to be um, so just kind of not underestimating how important it is to take care of your own well-being whether it's physical or more kind of mental health um, and ensuring that you've got a bit of fuel in the tank, basically, to because parenting is is bloody difficult. So you know, true. even when it's kind of going okay and smoothly, it's still exhausting. Um, and you know, something really that we, you know, it really is. You need to have energy for both in terms, you know, physical but also sort of emotional energy. And then I, I guess you know that you you know that kind of comes into play even more if you're a single parent. You know, like you, you don't have that other person to just say, "Look, please, can you just put them to bed tonight?" Or, you know, I just want a night off, like, or I'm going away. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. And and you know, those who are you know certainly single parents, that's been a real kind of concern. And again, a, probably a neglected group, I would say, in terms of the pandemic, but also those just with sort of limited social support networks so really trying to think with parents about how they can increase their own sort of social support and how to tap mm. into that to give themselves a bit of a yeah a breather but a, a place just to kind of refuel and and fill up again I um, wonder um how many kind of you know because I, I know from my own situation you know at the beginning of the pandemic my husband and I had to really have some sit down chats about how we we're going to make everything work and support each other through it um because we both actually ended up carrying on working because he's a, we're both key workers but um but yeah I think you know and, and if you've got for example if you're the mother staying at home looking after the kids and your husband is at home working or your partner is at home working on zoom constantly um you know sometimes having that person in the house but not available to support you can be like more frustrating than them just not being there at all and I think like <laughs> you know just knowing all. that they're there hearing the baby screaming and just like they don't you know they come out and tell you to be quiet or something you're just like <laughs> so you know I think yeah it must be there must have been so many interesting conversations with with parents and I think you know it's it's it is just ensuring that you support each other as well as look after yourself so 
Definitely. And I think, I mean, there's been quite a lot written, hasn't there, about, you know, women who have taken the brunt of the, the mm-hmm. you know, the childcare and the homeschooling. And, you know, there's, I've, I've read a few sort of um, things written by men, you know, recognising, oh, I've been able to see just quite how much my, you know, if they're in a, a heterosexual relationship, how much my wife or part female partner has been doing. And that's been sort of quite uh, nice to see, but... I think ultimately the inequality is massive, isn't it? And, and again, yeah. it's something that's been magnified during this time. God. <laughs> so, I know, like, take a deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do you have um, any tips, you know, for um, a parent who thinks that their child's kind of anxious, of the, you know, things that you can do for your, your young child to support them? Yeah, so I guess I, in terms of sort of general... Um, kind of support for for kids um a kind of general tip that we would give to all parents that we're working with is to try and prioritize um we call it one-to-one time or special play or um something you can do maybe for every day but it might not be every day it might just be once or twice a week depending on what's realistic for you but just kind of 10 minutes of really really focused time with your child um if you've got more than one child the ideal is to do it individually with each child, but that's obviously not always possible. Um, but giving that time where you just absolutely put everything else to one side, you know, nothing to do with work, you're not kind of slightly distracted by something else, that you really give that kind of focused attention and you're engaging in something that they're kind of interested in. So you're led by them, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. And just that opportunity to really connect in a way that you can't do for much of the time because, you know, there's so much going on. Um, but it can be such a positive thing for for your child, but also for you and for your relationship together. Mm. Do you know what? It's so funny because we we this weekend we I went away with some friends and we had this exact discussion about spending quality time with your child. We, we were talking about like reflecting on our own childhoods and all that sort of stuff. And my friend said that when he thinks back to like his his most vivid memories of the of childhood they're the times that he spent one on one with his dad or one on one with his mum they're not like the big family scenarios they're that individual kind of connection and you know there's a very you know very specific kind of trip that they went on just you know and you think wow that's it's so true and i think also like when you've got more than one child it can be pretty intense when you're on your own with both of them because you know one's doing one thing one's in the other and you're just trying to kind of fight the fires whereas when you've got the one child on their own my husband and I have definitely started kind of dividing to conquer much more now and it's it may it's so much more pleasant like you know I love walking along the road with just one of the children and like chatting and showing things and it just feels you know um I don't know it just feels like a much better interaction than when you've got both of them because it does feel you know you just think god where are they where's the other one oh you know it's just like ah all the time you know maybe that's just my parenting but (laughs) but um no no I think that's a common (laughs) common experience what other things do you think could be beneficial for them so I think I guess just thinking about kind of well-being as a whole just yeah similarly I guess thinking about connection to others and not um underestimating the importance of kind of I suppose something we particularly appreciate now given the pandemic but that Mm. kind of authentic connection to other people and how you know the quality of the relationships we have with other people is so paramount to our well-being and to our mental health so I guess for children particularly you know school is a place where they can you know navigate social relationships and that's obviously so important for social development but thinking about also how they can connect to other kids outside of that so they've got a sort of 
um, I guess, an array of spaces where they can kind of connect to other children. And, you know, that can be free or, or low cost activities. It doesn't have to be kind of very expensive clubs. But just thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, being able to try new things um, and to meet new people, that's, mm-hmm. that's so kind of important for our kind of well-being. I think something that, um, you know, I, we've only kind of just started to get to that stage is doing things like, you know, dinner date, not dinner dates, but tea or, you know, what do people call it? Like when you have, bring the, you have someone else's kid over for dinner. And I think like, you know, we, we kind of were only just getting into that realm when the pandemic hit. And I think getting that set up would be so nice because, you know, A, you're helping each other out because, you know, you've got all the kids together. You can have a nice interaction with the parent, but the kids love it as well. But yeah, I think it's, you know, just starting to build those relationships and helping them feel comfortable around somebody else's home and yeah, building those relationships, as you say. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the basics, I think, again, just not to sort of underestimate in terms of, you know, the sleeping, you know, eating habits, exercise habits, activity. I mean, again, these are things that have been kind of, there's been a big spotlight on them over the the course of the pandemic. But I guess really thinking about those areas almost as like a layer of armour. So if you're eating well, you're getting decent enough sleep, you're getting enough activity and exercise in. In terms of your emotional regulation, you're much better placed to be able to kind of navigate stresses and strains of life if those things are Mm. kind of relatively stable. So just kind of really focusing on them if you know that that's an area your child is struggling with, not to sort of ignore it, I suppose. I definitely noticed, in fact, my husband was the one who pulled it up at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all in lockdown and I was working from home and I'd have the children next door kind of watching TV or whatever, that like biscuits and chocolate and things like that got kind of crept into the house which we never normally had because I'd be like oh you know have a biscuit have a biscuit go next door go next door you know mummy's working mummy's working and I just think you know at some point I was suddenly like how is it that we're suddenly just having all of these things we never used to have them in the house and thankfully they've all gone again now you know but yeah it's it's so true like you just think wow like the emotional crutches that you think or you know this bribery isn't it at the end of the day <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think that bribery is probably a strong word. I, I think part of that is also comfort and like not to sort of um, be too hard on yourself because I think that within sort of times of stresses, food can be a real source of comfort, can't it? It's a way of like attending to our needs or, you know, giving ourselves something to make us, you know, to feel a bit better. I think that's, I think we've all, we've all kind of uh, gone down that route. That's, that's quite a, a natural thing to do. Chuck. Chocolate buttons were the one for me over lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) Giant chocolate buttons and maybe a little bit of wine. (laughs) Okay, so how, what can you do to support children with their anxiety? Like what sort of things should we be saying to them and how can we, how can we support them? Yeah, so I think um, this is something that, yeah, often parents will kind of come with questions. So, what you know, how can how can I? What do I need to say, or what do I need to do? And I think one of the key things for for us working with parents is about supporting them to think about the the way that they're communicating um, in response to their child's distress. So, thinking about how do they feel when their child presents to them with anxiety or or, or upset? What does it sort of bring up for them? Because there's this real um temptation as a parent something I I can totally identify with that when you see your child upset or worried about something you have this immediate urge to get rid of that feeling that it's just you know you don't want them to feel that way because it ultimately affects you know how you're feeling um and what we tend to do is we kind of 
get into the habit of offering lots of reassurance or saying, you know, no, you'll be fine. Don't worry. You know, you can do it. There's nothing to be, to be worried about. And actually what that does or what it can do is kind of shut down that child's emotional experience. So either sort of sending the message that what they're feeling is somehow not okay or perhaps not right or that they shouldn't be expressing those feelings. So we talk a lot with parents about the importance of emotional validation and offering a sense of space and containment for their children to just express how they're feeling and not Mm. to feel like they've got to rush in with a solution or a reassurance or to say, you know, just do this or just do this, that just to kind of create a bit of space for those feelings. Um, Mm. And And that takes time because I think if you're in the middle of a, you know, getting someone to nursery or, you know, doing all these different things that you really have to just pause and take the time to kind of, try and connect with them and allow that you know it's it can be quite hard I think I'm you know thinking back to those situations with my children you know when you just think everything's fine you know you do just try and say oh you'll be fine everything's fine you know let's not worry about that you know and actually yeah we are trying to build like strong resilient children that can vocalize and and express their feelings and I think if you are always shutting them down then that's going to have an impact so I will try that myself (laughs) It's hard. And also because often you're faced with, I was saying before, a behaviour. So you may be not always being presented with with the emotion itself. You might be having to use your kind of detective skills in a way to figure out, actually, there might be anxiety there, even though what you're seeing is a sort of total meltdown. Um, And sort of helping your child to sort of verbalise and connect what they're experiencing with their emotional kind of internal world, that that is so important for their development not just emotionally but socially as well to know how they can communicate with others and to know that those feelings are acceptable that they are part and parcel of being you know a human being essentially that we don't just create space for the happiness the joy the excitement that you know we need to make room for those more difficult Mm. feelings as well gosh I think like you you know and that's where as a parent you need that energy and that kind of you know resource so that you can take the time and and spend the time with them and have have it in your kind of bank to to be able to support them through it because I think if you're kind of stretched to your absolute limits and and not feeling great yourself then you're certainly not going to be able to support someone else through it so and it's more than just like a you know when you deal with a friend because you know it's not just a conversation it's kind of like you're trying to tease out what it is so yeah it's it's hard you know even when they get upset and you're trying to distract them you know coming up the distraction is like oh I just don't you know like it's 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 always a challenge yeah and I guess it's different I suppose I mean you are obviously emotionally impacted by your friends Mm. the upset but for your child it's that such an intense thing isn't it if you see your Mm. child really upset it's kind of Mm it really kits you in the gut, you know, mm. it, you kind of, it mm. impacts you as, as a parent or a caregiver. So I think, yeah, being, like you say, being really aware of what it is bringing up for you. And if you're not in a place where you're kind of um, got much in the tank, we're much more likely to slip into, let's speed it up, hurry up, come on, we need to get to school, go, go, go. And you're kind yeah. of, you know, and, and that's, that's going to happen sometimes, you know, you can't do this all the time, but, you know, where, where possible, I suppose, just trying to ch- tap into what's the feeling behind the behaviour. There's um there's a really good book that I got called um The Great Book of Feelings by Mary Hoffman, which I'll pop in the show notes. And um it's just got lots of you know, it talks about it, it says, you know, how are you feeling today? Or it has all these pictures of different faces and you know, 
what what uh, emotion is this child feeling and then it goes through you know anger happiness sadness um embarrassment fear and every single page and then um basically you can choose your child kind of chooses how they're feeling and you know when they felt that way and i remember once i'd done something um I think I'd spent some one-on-one time with my eldest that day, which is something I hadn't done for a while and I was just aware I needed to do it. And then we did that book and the, you know, I said, how are you feeling today? And she said, calm. And it just got me. I was like, oh my God, like you've obviously just needed that from me so much. And I'd, you know, given her that, that time and, you know, that kind of security. And it, it was just, it really kind of was quite powerful. and then you were mentioning about the tummy ache in the morning. So what sort of things, like other things could you say, like when you're, you know, packing them into school, chucking them into, you know, trying to get them to nursery as soon as possible? I think, well, it's, it's just such a common, um, it's either the mornings or the bedtimes that they seem to be the two kind of key points in the day that often are these kind of trigger points, um, which I guess the transitions, you know, we talked about transitions earlier, they're transitions in the day, aren't they, of either separating from parents to go to perhaps a, a school or a childcare or separating from them to go to bed. So I guess just to give some examples of what you might actually say to your child. So what you might be seeing or hearing is a child kind of procrastinating, doing everything that they can to delay getting dressed or delay having breakfast. You might be hearing some talk about tummy aches or feeling sick. And I suppose as a parent, often we're in, in the mornings, they're rushed, aren't they? We're kind of, we need to get out of the house. We need to get to yeah. work, perhaps. We need to get them to yeah. school on time. And there's that temptation to come on, hurry up. You know, you're going to be okay. Get get there quickly. But I suppose if you notice that behaviour is happening, just taking a moment to kind of reflect back to them. Oh, sometimes when I've got a tummy ache, it's because I'm feeling worried about something. I sometimes get a tummy ache before I go to work if I've got a big presentation. Or you know, I wonder if you're feeling a bit worried about going to school today. So you're sort of reflecting back what they're presenting with. You're helping them to kind of make sense of it, but also then inquiring and trying to kind of connect perhaps what they're sort of communicating to you mm. into an emotional kind of experience. So, you know, is it that, is it that you're feeling a bit, bit worried about school? And then giving them a bit of time to kind of digest that and to kind of communicate back to you rather than quickly jumping in with, but you know you're going to be fine because, you know, you've got Miss Robinson there and you've got your friends there and you were fine yesterday, weren't you? So let's just get a move on, let's go. So giving them that time to sort of actually communicate that maybe there is something that's on their mind, um, and obviously, depending on the age of the child, you might get a reason. You might, you know, hear that there's a test that day or there's, you know, something going on in the friendship group. Or yeah. you might not. You might just have a kid who's got that sort of slight sense of dread that we sometimes get, you know, in the morning before work. So we're kind of not really up for it that day. Um, so it's fine not, not, to, not to have a reason. Um, but really just kind of normalising it, you know, letting them know it's absolutely OK to feel that way and offering them some empathy, you know, that you know you you hear them you understand them that it's that sometimes going to school is really difficult mm. and only when you've done that and you've validated that fe- kind of feeling or those feelings for them do you then sort of start to think with them about how they can manage so giving them that sense of so yeah you know it's okay to feel like this but you do still have to go to school essentially yeah. is kind of the message but helping them to empower them to kind of come up with um you know a sort of a solution so you know asking them you know what could we do together what could we what could we do today to help you to get into school what might help you to feel happier about going in school what might help you to to get there today yeah gosh it's it's 
I'm sure it, it happens so often. And even, you know, the bedtime routine, I know that, you know, my daughter's like, can I have a glass of water? Can I have a flannel on my forehead, please? Can I, mommy, can I just have one more book? And you just think, you know, I, I often kind of, some, well, you know, you do shut it down sometimes because you just say, look, you're just playing games with me because you want me to stay here. But then, then you think, well, gosh, maybe there is actually something that they're anxious about, you know, so... Yeah, and I think the difference with the the bedtime is that it's probably not the time to get into a big discussion about it, right? So for a bedtime worry, you probably want to kind of have a conversation about that with them during the day at some point. Whereas, And again, in the morning, you know, if you're on your way, if they're going into school, you might not have time to really explore a kind of real worry that they have, but at least giving them that opportunity to kind of express it or to help them to sort of make sense of why they're sort of feeling... Yeah. a bit anxious about going to school that that's that's helpful um yeah and I think I think um sometimes having the discussion outside of the moment is also quite helpful because I know if they're kind of in a real fluster or very upset you know you just it's not the time but I think making sure that you kind of come back to it at a, at a calm moment and and you know a focused moment talk about it and break it down a bit more and you know make a plan as to how you can support them next time and yeah and what, what about I mean I know the other thing sometimes I, I I've done with azalea is um at bedtime I'll I'll do we they did it at nursery a lot they did um we did breathing techniques so we take some nice big deep breaths good belly breaths you know and have a teddy bear on her tummy and get her to lift the teddy up into the towards the ceiling and I mean it, it calms all of us down you know and also headspace have got really good kids um a uh, little you know minute long or two minute long meditation things and they're great you know I used to lie on the floor while she'd be in bed and we'd do these meditation things together and I think that definitely helped a lot as well definitely I, I think yeah so important and so important to kind of be mindful of how where they're at in terms of sort of you know if you think about a scale of you know emotional arousal or distress you know if they're kind of right at the top of the scale that ability to think rationally or to sort of problem solve or to think about what might help them to manage, it's just not accessible at all. And particularly for younger children where, you know, their brains just aren't developed in that way yet. So helping them to kind of really manage and regulate those physiological sensations and sort of calm everything back down in the body. Once you've done that, you know, and you do that by validating, so validating and empathising, that helps to kind of co-regulate your child. But also those kind of, like you say, the practical, the breathing, the belly breathing. There's so many great resources now out there to sort of help young kids really connect to their body and, and can sort of have a bit more yeah. sense of control over that. Yeah, and I think they kind of love it. You know, even the things like, you know, what can you smell? What can you touch? What can you see? You know, just kind of really connecting with the now and the present and, you know, what can you hear? All those different things. I think, I think you know, it can be really good to ground you. And as a parent as well, you know, to do it as a parent yeah. because you're probably I mean, a bit flustered in that yeah. moment too. To do it together, exactly. Yeah, that's why I used to do it with her because I've been, you know, complete like, <laughs> and then you know, it does just bring everybody back down. Go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For God's sake, I'm knackered. Just please. So if you're a parent and you were concerned with your child's mental health, but you know you've tried all these different things and you're still not getting anywhere, where what would what would you suggest for them to do to seek help? So I think if if you're comfortable to do so, I think kind of school and GP, school particularly, because I think as we were saying earlier, you know, this it's likely that your school probably has a better understanding. Um, you know, they know your child better than probably your GP. That's not always the case. Mm. 
But I think because so many schools now do have access to su support in terms of mental health, that is a really good starting place. If you feel like the relationship with the school is there and if you feel able to and comfortable to kind of share your concerns. Um, every school now should have a mental health link worker so that they should be able to identify someone for you to have those initial conversations with. But equally, you could obviously approach you know, the class teacher or, or a member of staff who perhaps knows your child quite well. Um, but obviously, if you don't feel comfortable going to, to the school, then, yeah, I would say your GP is probably the, the next best port of call because they should, I say should because it's such a minefield, should know about which services are available within your borough where you live and should be able to connect you up and make a kind of referral on to, to services if that's what's felt to be appropriate. Um, it's not actually always the case in reality for lots of different reasons, but... Um, I think every GP has their different speciality, don't they? You know, it's like, you know, when you go and have your six week checkup after you've had a baby, you should have an assessment for a diastasis. They should ask you questions about incontinence. But, you know, you only really get that if you've got a GP that's kind of really into that sort of stuff. Or, you know, most of them are like, you feeling OK? Feeling depressed? Right, tick, tick, fine, go, off you go, you're fine. And, you know, you're lucky if you even get that sometimes. So, yeah, I think, you know, if you've got somebody who has mental health at the top of their agenda, then they hopefully will be a bit more aware of those services. But equally, if you don't have somebody who's like that, you know, ask the questions and you know, they, they all should at least have the resources to kind of signpost you in the right direction. And, you know, and then there will obviously be your kind of local stuff within the area and, you know, online stuff. So, so. yeah, I think most I mean, I'm, I'm I, work, I work in a London borough, so um, it, there is kind of a, quite a, an effective online system that parents can tap into. I don't know. I couldn't kind of speak for it nationally but I mean generally speaking if you google uh, mental health support children and then the name of where you live you should be able to get um, a way of kind of accessing some sort of local support either via the local authority or via the NHS that should be in place. Yeah so it's, it's the CAM service isn't it so it's child and adolescence mental health service. So that yeah that's the kind of um, generally speaking their NHS services I think that the difficulty um, that families tend to kind of face is that the way that the system is structured is that it's it's not straightforward at all there's like different tiers we kind of talk about different tiers within mental health so we have tier one which is a kind of primary care that would be your GP that might be your school nurse that's kind of your first port of call for for support in terms of physical or mental health mm. um, and then you have your tier two services which this is sort of we often call them kind of early help but they are um, perhaps more specialist or, or more kind of targeted so that might be an NHS CAM service that sits within tier two but it might also be a charity or um, a social enterprise or oh, I don't know, you know it, the difficulty comes is because it isn't always NHS that it's across so many different services and you might have six mm. different services in your area who offer this type mm. of support and maybe the sort of support within that is slightly different. Some might offer counselling, some might have psychology support, some might have specialist nurses. So this is where it starts to get really complicated because there's just, you know, sometimes I work in a mental health service and I couldn't tell you every single, you know, available service within the borough. It, it is a bit of a minefield. Um, and then the CAM service that you were referring to, so that's normally the kind of what we say, the tier three CAMs, that's the more specialist CAM service. Um, where you get okay. sort of multidisciplinary teams so you might have psychology you might have family therapy psychotherapy plus psychiatry um, and that tends to be for the more kind of complex or, or severe mental health difficulties 
And then the last one is the tier four, and that's the kind of inpatient um, and also outreach services. So that we do have inpatient services for young people right from a kind of very young age. Ideally, we want to keep people out of hospital where we can. So the outreach services are there to try and sort of offer much more um, targeted and kind of sort of regular support in a short space of time so you might have them going into the family home a few times a week to really offer that substantial support to try to prevent an admission um but it's yeah I mean that in in and of itself it's hard to sort of navigate if you're in the system if you're just you know a family who doesn't have much knowledge of the mental health sector and why would you it, it is a total minefield and you're in the thick of like you know this really stressful time where your child is you know depressed or anxious or you know self-harming or whatever and you're just desperate to get help it must be so challenging wow well what, what we'll do is we'll put the tears um i might put the tears in in the show notes because i think that's actually a really helpful kind of um resource and we'll put all of the resources that you've mentioned and the book and you know headspace all those different things in into the show notes for anyone wanting to access them thank you so much caroline i think this is just such an important topic and sadly something that we're all a little bit more aware of in the last year um, no one wants their child to be, you know, distressed or depressed or anxious. And I think it's a pretty un- un- crazy world for adults, let alone for the children. So I hope that if anybody kind of listens to this and, you know, has concerns for their child or, or for themselves, for that matter, you know, do contact your, your local GP, the school or your local services and seek help because it is out there. And it's just about kind of reaching out. And, and also, you know, like you said before, draw upon your, your social network, whether it's just, you know, having someone to check in on you um, on the phone or and make that time for yourself, really. So Oh, definitely. I hope that, yeah. I guess, with, with, you know, what comes with a kind of shared experience, you know, and a challenging shared experience is that empathy and understanding that, you know, all of us at some point in the last sort of 18 months, you know, have found things difficult. Obviously, the variation there has been massive, but that sense of seeking seeking support and reaching out, you know, hopefully that understanding is, has increased as well. So, yeah, I would absolutely echo that. You know, if you feel that you or your, your child is struggling please, please do, do seek some support. You know, it, it is there. Amazing. Well, well, listen, enjoy your last week of work. I hope you get to, I hope the sun lasts for you so that when you finish work, you can just go and lie in the garden. <laughs> yeah, me too. And good luck with the birth as well. Number two. Thank as well. you, yeah. Should be smoother this time, right, Okay, That's what everyone says. Yes. <laughs> well, I just went for the elective, so... <laughs> but no they say they just they just pop up like a like a pea <laughs> yes i'm gonna sneeze this one out you don't want that to happen <laughs> amazing amazing. no true actually talking to amazing. a physio yeah <laughs> you want to have some control <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> love it amazing all right babe listen enjoy your day and thank you so much for coming on and we'll speak to you soon bye thank you for listening to this episode of tinto talks don't forget to rate review and subscribe to tinto talks so that more mothers can find trustworthy answers to those burning questions have a wonderful week and thanks again for listening